0: You are listening to a sermon by Dr. Richard Caldwell, produced by Walking in Grace. Walking in Grace is a listener-supported ministry. If you'd like to know how you can help these messages reach more people, visit walkingingrace.org slash media. If you would please turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 10. A few Sunday evenings ago, we dealt with a text that taught us about the dangers of legalism. This week, it was on my heart to deal with this text that is sort of a companion to that, looking at a similar issue. Actually, the same issue, I guess I could say, but from a bit of a different angle. Legalism, what we might impose on others... What we're going to be dealing with this morning has more to do with our own attitude toward that kind of judgment. And so if you're here visiting with us normally on these Lord's Days, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. But today I wanted to share this with you, Second Corinthians chapter 10, and we're going to look at verses 10 through 12. The Word of God says this, For they say His letters are weighty and strong, but His personal presence is weak. And his words contemptible. Let such a person consider this: that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. For we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. Let's go to our God together in prayer and ask His blessing. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for the many graces that we have already experienced this day. To sing our praises, to have Your Word in our mouths in song is a great blessing to us. To hear the testimonies that we heard this morning from the baptistry and to witness the obedience of believers as they follow our Savior, the public confession of His name through water baptism, Lord, that rejoices our hearts. Throughout this service, Lord, on my mind is the reality that we are one breath, one heartbeat away from eternity. And how that should inform our living in this moment. Or not in a way that is morbid, but in a way that is awake. And the desires of our hearts to exalt our great shepherd, whom we've just sung about the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great shepherd of the sheep, the good shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Our God, the head of this church and every church, our desire this day is to exalt Him, to glorify Him, to tell the truth about Him, to point sinners to Him, and for all of us, your children, to abide in Him and experience what it is to be fed in Him and nourished in Him and Strengthened in Him, Lord, would you today in our midst make much of our Savior, your Son? We ask you to teach us in this next hour. The Spirit of God alone can give us a right understanding of the Word of God. The Spirit of God alone can enable us, strengthen us to grasp what you've given to us in these holy words written down for us, so that we have in our possession the very words that come from heaven, that come from you, God. Would you strengthen us this day to receive them? Explain them rightly and clearly and then to receive them? And as a result, would you strengthen this congregation? Would you save, Lord? We ask you would save even today men, women, young people who need your Son and don't yet know Him. We ask for these things in the name of Jesus, for His sake. Amen. One of the greatest battles we will face in the Christian life is with a sinful concern over what other people think of us. This is a great, great battle. There is an appropriate sense in which we should be concerned about what others think of us. There is that. We'll talk about that some today. What I have in mind as I look at these verses is the reality that sometimes we have a sinful concern over what other people think of us. This can be a battle in the realm of what we're seeking after. We we, we desire another person's approval of us. We desire a group of people's approval of us. We want their respect. And so we find ourselves striving for that. This can be a battle in the realm of what we sense. We are sometimes upset, we're bothered by nothing more than what someone else thinks of us. Find ourselves in a state of unrest, agitation, and nothing has happened except we sense someone doesn't like us or they're unhappy with us. Sometimes it's a battle in the realm of satisfaction. I mean, what is really going to satisfy our hearts? And we can be guilty of treating human approval as if it equals to divine approval. If everyone else is happy with me, then I'm happy. Forgetting that what matters most is what God knows of me and sees in me. To put it simply, if everyone was happy with me, but the Lord knew of things in my life out of order, that should be my greatest concern a battle in the realm of self-condemnation. On the other end of that spectrum, sometimes we can feel poorly about ourselves, down upon ourselves for no other reason than someone else disapproves of us. Again, treating human disapproval as if it is equal to divine disapproval. The question we all face is, can we entrust ourselves to God? Can we really entrust ourselves to God? Can we be satisfied with God? On the one hand, we all know this. It it is better to fall into the hands of men than the hands of God. I mean, if you talk about everlasting judgment, better to fall into the hands of man's disapproval, even if it reaches the state of execution, martyrdom. Better to fear God than to fear men. All that man can do is destroy the body. God can destroy body and soul in hell, Matthew 10, 28. But I've often thought about it in another sense I would rather fall into the hands of God than the hands of men. I mean, as a child of God, I would rather fall into God's hands because He's more faithful than men are, He's more compassionate than men often are, He is more understanding than men often are, He is more patient hopeful, forgiving than men often are. On display in the three verses that we read is a maturity in the Apostle Paul, an understanding that sets him free to serve Christ, a freedom from intimidation and being paralyzed by what people think of him, so that he's free to serve Christ at the very same time then, free to love a congregation, Free to do what's best for the Corinthian congregation. Did you know that in one sense you are not free to serve Christ until you're free from seeking to please people? Galatians 1.10 says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Colossians 3.22 brings it down to the level of even how you go to work every day. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Don't do what you do, bondservants, slaves. Don't do what you do only when people are watching. So as to please them, but with sincerity of heart, reverence the Lord in all that you do. Make sure that you're mindful of Him. I want to warn us at the outset of the sermon today that truth is like a razor's edge. Truth is as narrow as truth. You miss it to the right or to the left and you're not in the truth anymore. And we're going to spend a lot of time today thinking about one side of the the razor's edge. The danger of living our lives to please people instead of pleasing Christ. But I want to warn you that there's a danger on the other side of the razor's edge. And it's as tremendous a danger as the first one. On the other side of the razor's edge is the danger of thinking that all that matters is your self-assessment. You hear me say, don't live to please people, live to please God. You go, that's exactly right. All I care about is what I think of me. You're in the ditch. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what this text talks about. We we always face the danger of pride, don't we? A kind of pride that doesn't really examine yourself. We heard beautiful testimonies this morning. We heard about the hardness of heart that can develop... And if we're not careful, that can happen in a life where there's a hardness that develops where the only perspective that we can even pay attention to is our own. The danger of an unapproachable, stubborn kind of life that refuses godly human influences. I mean, God uses people in our lives, doesn't He? Sometimes He will use people to save us from ourselves. To save us from our sin. So to avoid one error, only to fall into the ditch on the other side of the truth, would do us no good. What we're after today, may may the Lord grant this by His Spirit, by His strength, by His power. What we're after is to walk in the truth, that godly, holy balance that only the Spirit of God can produce where we're not people-pleasers, we're Christ-pleasers, but at the same time our ears and hearts are open to every influence Christ would use to make us the men and women that He wants us to be. May God help us to arrive at that truth. Amen? So today, we're thinking about a freedom that allows us to serve Christ, but not an attitude that turns a deaf ear to the right kind of human influence. I want to begin this morning with the background for our three verses. We're thinking now about the entire chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. When you get to this 10th chapter, there's a change in the apostles' tone. But what you have in this 10th chapter is a pastoral exhortation. The shepherd's exhortation. This is like the pleading of a parent who would rather your child listen to you than to have to discipline them? Every parent knows what I'm describing. Will you please just listen to me? I don't want to have to discipline you. This chapter is is sort of like that. Would you listen to me? At the same time, it is the warning of a shepherd who is trying to rescue these people from wolves, even at a time when the wolves have poisoned the people against the shepherd. You've known that experience too. Somewhere in your, in, your, in your years on this planet, you've known what it is to try to reach someone who has been poisoned against you. Your, your motives are pure. You're, you just want to help them, but they can't hear you because of the way they view you. And the way they view you has been twisted. It's misinformed. It's poisoned. What he's addressing in this chapter is the dangerous, slanderous influence of false teachers. Some men who, if they were not claiming it formally, they were at least practically acting like apostles. In fact, Paul refers to them as super apostles, sarcastically. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 4 says, For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed. Or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. I'm disappointed in what you put up with. and What you're open to. You're too open. And then he says, Indeed, I consider that I'm not in the least inferior to these super apostles. These men who think very highly of themselves, and they've convinced you, to think highly of them. But they're influencing you in a way that is not good for you. Paul has become their mark. They have their bullseye set on his back. They have sought to influence the church of Corinth against him because if they can lessen Paul's influence, they gain an influence in the Corinthian church. Paul recognizes this. He knows what they're doing. In the midst of this rescue operation, when you come to the 10th verse, you come to a specific charge. What is their charge against Paul? Well, again, the larger context, they're attacking him from a number of different angles. But the one charge that he has to answer in verse 10, notice what it says again, for they say, his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is weak and his words contemptible. The the one charge he's having to answer here is that he is one kind of man in his letters and another kind of man in person. In this attack is an attack on Paul's abilities, no doubt about that, because these super apostles view that as a commentary on his authority. Look at his personal presence. Look at his bodily presence. It's not very impressive. And if we measure him by what their culture had come to love, if we measure him based upon philosophical oratory ability, he's not doing very well. Paul tells us in other places that he he avoided all that. He preached the truth of God in very straightforward, clear, simple terms. And for these super apostles, that's not impressive. Where is the lofty oratory? Where are these speaking skills that we so highly value? And by the way, they don't just say he struggles a bit. They say his words are contemptible. Worthless is what the word means. His speech is worthless. And his personal presence is weak. These are strong, personal, insulting statements. But in this charge is not just an attack on his abilities, there's also an attack on his character. That's the weightier part of this charge, isn't it? I mean, it's one thing to attack someone's abilities, their appearance, that's hurtful. But it's even weightier when you attack their character. In fact, from the standpoint of the person being attacked, this is the most paralyzing. This is the most debilitating. When you attack someone's character, they're attacking Paul's forthrightness, his integrity, his consistency. Is Paul duplicitous? Is he cowardly? Is he a manipulator? Paul's a lion in his letters. He's a lamb when he shows up. And is he like this? For reasons more than just ability would explain. Is he like this because this is his character? And there are more charges as you read the letter. As you go on, in fact, into the very next verses, he's going to have to defend himself against the charge that he overreaches from the standpoint of authority he exaggerates the limits of his ministry, authority, and, and so they're going to attack him in a number of different ways. But at the heart of it all is an attack on his unique relationship to this church, his calling as an apostle. He's already had to defend himself against that charge. First Corinthians, in the first letter, you know, there's a severe letter we don't have. First Corinthians, spirit-inspired, preserved, therefore, for the church, Chapter 9, verse 2 says, If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Your evangelism, your presence as a congregation speaks to the fact that God has used me in your life. If I wasn't an apostle to anybody else, I should be to you. So the background, pastoral exhortation, the pleading of a parent, The warning of a shepherd. The charge. Paul is one man in his letters. He's another man face to face. Some of this has to do with his ability. He is a weak personal presence. And his speech is terrible. But as you're going to see as he defends himself. What they also have in mind is. He's just not a straightforward straight shooter kind of guy. He is duplicitous. He is cowardly. And all of this from the vantage point of his accusers should lessen his authority in the eyes of the Corinthian church. Why would you listen to him? Listen to us. How does he answer it? Look at verse 11. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. Just like his preaching, it's simple, isn't it? Straightforward, right to the point. I love the fact that he says it this way, let such a person consider this. He personalizes this. I mean, he brings it down to the level of the individual. Let a person who makes a charge like that consider what I'm about to say. And maybe by making it personal like that, he has in mind the ringleader of these super apostles, or maybe what he's doing is bringing what he's about to say down to the level of, if you have participated in this kind of talk, if you have listened to this kind of talk, here's what I want you to know. Designing his defense in a way that each person is called to examine his or her participation in this attack. What we are from a distance, we are in person. What we are in word, by letters, when absent, such persons we are also indeed when present. When absent, when present, we're the same. Same guy. Now why would someone think differently? Well, I have no doubt that when Paul showed up in person... What you saw was a gentleness, a patience that belongs to shepherds. This often gets mistaken as weakness, doesn't it? Gentleness, patience, pastoral care, compassion, sometimes can be mistaken for weakness. What you're seeing is not duplicity. What you're seeing is pastoral desire. As I said, it's like a parent. I would rather you listen to me than to have to engage in discipline so if his letters seem weightier, and by the way, the, his, his opponents could never deny that he had weighty written communication. If his letters seem weightier than his personal presence, you can explain it uh, cynically by saying that he's duplicitous. But if you, if you were to explain it accurately, what you would say is, this is a shepherd. He's loving this church. He's wanting to reach into the heart of this church. As he says in another place, My heart is wide open to you. Why have you closed your heart to me? What we are from a distance, we are in person. What we are by letter, he says, we are by deed. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when absent, such persons we also are also in deed when present. What I say in my letters I am ready to do. I'm not a different man, I'm not inconsistent, I'm not a manipulator. The patience, the gentleness, the time that's been taken without action is explained by a loving desire, not by duplicity. What Paul is saying as he goes on to defend himself, we'll see this in just a moment, is you, you, you have misunderstood me as, as, as someone who seeks human approval. Why is it that sometimes a person might be bold in one setting and passive in another setting? Sometimes it's because of the desire to please people. You can be bold when absent, bold by letter, but now you come face to face and you desire to please someone and so you, you become another person. that's how they think about him, but that's not what he is. That's not what he is. So that as he goes on with his defense in verse 12, it's very helpful and interesting. You don't just, you have Paul explaining his consistency, but at the same time he explains his consistency, he exposes their character. As he defends his character, he exposes their character. He actually analyzes his antagonists. Why is Paul not characterized by duplicity, by dishonesty? It's because he's living his life with an eternal standard in mind. He's living his life by a different standard than these false teachers. The reason they think of him in these duplicitous terms is because Duplicity belongs to the realm in which they operate. They are wrapped up in pleasing people. They are wrapped up in self-affirmation and mutual affirmation. What they are most concerned about is how they see themselves and how their group sees them and one another So they don't understand how Paul operates at all. It's foreign to them. Often the case that men accuse others of what most characterizes them. Because you're someone who's a people pleaser. You see others as a people pleaser. Because you're someone who cares a lot about your self-assessment. You think he's someone who thinks about his self-assessment. They don't understand him at all. And so as He gives us a window into what motivates Him and gives us a window into what motivates them, what He does, praise be to our God, is He gives us a way to think and a way to live that should characterize all of us. What will characterize us if we are motivated by what should motivate Christians? What will characterize us if we have the standard of measurement correct. I mean, how are we going to measure our lives? How are we going to measure our service? How are we going to measure our usefulness, our giftedness, our rightness or wrongness? How are we going to measure this? And if we measure it the right way, what will that look like? We actually have an example in verse 12 of how you and I should be living our lives. There are four things here I want to point out. If we have our standards right, if we're living lives that are free to serve Christ, here are four things that will characterize us. First of all, the believer refuses self-classification. The believer refuses self-classification. Verse 12 says, For we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. Acrino is the word translated classify in the LSB, and it means just that, to make a judgment about something so that you classify it in a specific group. Classification. Stratification. We do not dare to classify ourselves. That it seems obvious, but I want to say it. Paul here is using sanctified sarcasm. His words are full of irony. And what he's really doing is he, is he is pointing a spotlight on how these antagonists think about themselves. They have a very high view of themselves. And therefore they feel qualified to classify everybody else. They are the classifiers. They are the ones who determine the stratifications. And Paul is saying, listen, I would not dare to classify myself with such esteemed people. You're so high, you're so lofty, I would never put myself in your stratification. Simon Kistemacher had this to say, good comment. He said, the use of the verb to dare makes the irony in this sentence obvious. No one can miss Paul's intention of ridiculing his opponents. The apostle sarcastically places them on a level he himself will never be able to reach. Extending his irony a little later, he calls these people super apostles. Chapter 11 verse 5. Paul continues to deride his opponents. He dares not call them his peers. For they surpass Him in their ease of speaking, and their use of power. He portrays them as eminent leaders whom the Lord should be pleased to have in His church. He Himself does not presume to be worthy of their company in view of the low ratings they've given Him. you've, You've rated me so low, I mean, I wouldn't dare to compare myself with you. But through that sarcasm... We're taught a valuable lesson, aren't we? Paul will not engage in the foolishness of spiritual class warfare. This is what we do. When we worry about, worry in a sinful way, about what people think about us, we're actually wondering, do we measure up? Are we in their class? Are we in the same stratosphere? Do we belong to the group? Are we inside or are we outside? And people can live their lives trying to get into the inside, trying to reach the level, trying to be in the same stratosphere when they are sinfully obsessed with how someone else thinks about them. As we'll see in a moment, Paul considers that to be foolishness. He says at the end of the verse, notice, we dare not classify, dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. This is foolishness. But this is what people do, and we have to refuse to do that. We have to refuse to care about that. How do you see me? What class do you put me in? Where do you rank me? Does that matter to you? If you're going to walk with Christ, if you're going to serve Christ, we must not think that way. Self-classification. second thing the believer refuses is self-comparison. He joins these two things together, doesn't he? For we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. You have to ask, how are the classifications determined? Well, the way the classifications are determined is through self-comparison. People comparing themselves with other people. And this is the, the ground of ignorance that we must not be found standing on. The ground of comparing ourselves with other people. Not only will this do harm to you in terms of your own spiritual health, it's also going to end up prohibiting you from being useful in the lives of other people, especially when those other people are in a state of failure, when they're hurting, when they've blown it. If this is the world you live in, self-classification, self-comparison, then when someone is hurting and they need an instrument of God to be a help to them, you will not be qualified to help them because your thinking is so far astray from the way you ought to be thinking. Galatians 6 is such a good example of this. Why don't you turn there with me just real quickly so you can see it with your eyes. Galatians 6, look at verse 1. Because I'm going to sort of dig down into these four verses for just a moment. Galatians 6, look at verse 1. English Standard Version says this, Brothers... If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one, this is is very, very important, Let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. You hear what Paul is saying here in Galatians. Let's just break it down for a moment. First of all, spiritual people aim at restoration when they meet with a brother's failure. If anyone's caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him. What you're aiming at is restoration. It's not to bury them in a grave. It's to, by the Lord's grace and power, put them on their feet. Now it is responsible restoration. It's not sweeping sin under a rug. It is seeing it in the clear light of the Word of God and then responding to it in accordance with the Word of God. So we're not talking about a sinful diminishing of sin or or the ignoring of sin. But nonetheless, if we're operating in the Word of God, we are seeking restoration in the lives of brothers and sisters. And that restoration operation is characterized by gentleness. Do you see that? Restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So when you meet with a brother's failure, it's not with harshness, it's with gentleness. Gentleness that you seek to be an instrument of God to to rescue. And the only way you can do this is if you're operating in humility, which is is stressed throughout the the, the four verses. We're told to keep watch on ourselves, verse 1, lest you too be tempted. I mean, what, what you ought to think is that could be me. Just as easily, brother, as it was you, it could have been me. And then verse 3 says, because if anyone thinks he's something, when he's what? Nothing. What are you? Something or nothing? If we see ourselves rightly, then we understand apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We are nothing. So if you think you're something when you're nothing, you are self-deceived. So we aim at restoration, we do it with gentleness, and we do it with humility. That could be me. But here's the amazing part of it. In addition to all of that, you come alongside that person in their failure. You don't say, now here's the, you know, you're in a ditch. Here's the road to get out of the ditch. No, you climb down, not in their sin, but in their pain. You climb down next to them and you walk with them out of the ditch. He says, bear one another's burdens. And he's talking in that context about someone's failure. If they're caught in any transgression, what do you do? You climb in there beside them, not into their sin, but into their pain. And you say, let me walk with you, brother, as we walk out of this ditch together. What you do not do, this gets to the idea of self-classification and self-comparison. What you do not do is use their failure as an opportunity to feel good about yourself. You see that in verse 4? When he says, but let each one test his own work. Examine yourself. Then if you're doing well, you'll have a reason to boast in what God's doing in your own life. But not in your neighbor. And this is what we sinfully do. We look at someone else's failure and we say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you that I'm not like them. I could, have you ever said this to yourself? I could never do that. I could never do that. I say to you, my brother sister, you just don't know yourself well enough. Except for the grace of God, there we go. So when we engage in these self-comparisons, you see, we're actually shutting ourselves off from the kind of, heart condition that allows us to be used by God when people need us most. Because instead of meeting with humility and gentleness and helpfulness, they meet with pride and self-exaltation and self-praise. Which gets to the third thing we must refuse. Refuse self-classification. Refuse self-comparison. Third, refuse self-commendation. Look back at the 10th chapter of 2 Corinthians, if you're not there. Verse 12, For we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. What characterizes these people who are doing this self-classification, self-comparison thing? What what characterizes them? Self-commendation, self-approval, self-praise, self-judgment in the positive. And and these three things always go together. When I feel myself, myself to be adequate to classify myself and others, it's because I'm comparing myself with others. And what it always involves is praising myself, either in contrast to others or in concert with others. So here's how this works. We find people that we already consider to be beneath us, and we compare ourselves to them, and then exalt ourselves in our own mind. You, you see, you see how they failed there. It's exactly what I said would happen. And so I'm above them. And there they are, in the pain of their failure, needing an instrument of God to be of help to them. Oh, I'm willing to, to be a helper, but in a way that, that condescends. Let me instruct you from the mountain. And so we find people who are beneath us in our, in our sinful thinking, and we compare ourselves with them, and what does it do? It exalts us. It commends us. Or, this happens often as well, we surround ourselves with people who agree that we're great and they're great. And so it turns into a self-affirmation, a self-admiration society. I'm great, you're great, we're all great. Aren't we great? Self commendation. And when we do this, we are outside, completely outside the knowledge of what true commendation is, where true commendation exists. Commendation doesn't belong with us, it belongs with God. Look at the 17th verse. Second Corinthians 10. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord, for it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. You're right, Pastor Richard. I'm not going to worry about what other people think of me. I just care about what I think of me. You you don't understand. It's not what they think of you, but it's not what you think of you either. Just because you say you're okay doesn't mean you're okay. The Lord commends what men think of you will never change who you really are. If they think you're great when you're living in sin, God knows you're living in sin. If they condemn you when you know you're pleasing the Lord, God knows you're pleasing Him. What people think of us makes no difference Whatsoever to the true state of things. God evaluates each of us. He never takes a poll. Let me poll their friend group. And then I'll make my determination. So you have to refuse this. You want to live a life that is becoming of the believer? You have to refuse self-classification. You have to refuse self-comparison. You have to refuse self-commendation. And when we do this, we are refusing self deception. Verse 12, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. You don't understand. You're operating in the realm of ignorance, you're missing it. You're self deceived. I think I can illustrate this from the realm of athletics. You have the best athlete at a small school. Then he goes to college. And he finds out the team is filled with the best athlete from each of those schools. The universe enlarges. And you realize that because your universe was too small, your view of yourself was too large. In the small universe, you were a big fish. And now you're just another fish in a really large pool. And if if you don't discover it there, you'll discover it at the next level. And if you don't discover it at the next level, you'll discover it when it's all over. What Paul is saying to us, what the Word of God says to us in many places is this. If your judgment of yourself is being determined by comparison with others, the universe for your comparison is too small If you took the whole world into account, it's too small. And your view of yourself is going to be too large. The one who examines us is the Lord. And He knows not only what we know, He knows what we don't know. He knows not only what you're aware of, He knows what you're completely unaware of. Which is why it is His judgment of us and His judgment alone that should matter to us. 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. This is the humility that people are often missing. You have judged yourself. You don't think there's anything wrong. All right, does that end the conversation? Have you acquitted yourself because of your knowledge of yourself? Your universe is too small. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. That'll make you humble, won't it? Lord, what do you know that I'm not seeing? What do you know that I'm missing? Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. I mean, when His judgment comes, dear ones, it's going to include our hearts. What was going on in our hearts? And then it says this, then each one will receive his commendation from God. You don't live by that standard, you're going to be self-deceived. You notice something? You notice how often in the 12th verse, this is not by accident. In the Greek text this stands out. In the ESV it's not as apparent. I'll point it out for you, but in the LSB they capture it. Do You notice how often he, he says themselves? We do not dare classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves. But when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves... Making a point, isn't he? It's all about themselves. It's a self-focused life, a self-measured life, a self-congratulating life, which means it is a superficially examined life. The only perspective you have in a life like that is man's perspective. That's a tremendous ignorance. In fact, Paul rebukes this church for missing What should have been so easy for them to see? You see in the 7th verse, he says, You are looking at things as they are outwardly. If anyone is confident in himself that he is Christ, let him consider this again within himself, that just as he is Christ, so also are we. I love the ESV on that verse. I think they capture capture it perfectly when, when it reads this way. Look at what is before your eyes. Look at what is before your eyes. Translating that as as an imperative. Look at what is before your eyes. As he he said in the first letter, if I'm not an apostle to anybody else, I should be to you. Here he is having to defend himself against these influencers that, that did not love the church, they loved themselves. Can't you see the difference? Let me finish very briefly with some closing applications and and some closing cautions. Applications. I'm going to fly through these, so listen quickly. First of all, sinful concern for the approval of others will lead to misjudgment of godly character. There's a danger in caring in a sinful way about what people think of you and those people not being godly. Because if they're not godly, they turn into manipulators. Paul warns in Galatians about the Judaizers in the seventeenth verse of chapter 4 by saying this, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. They are legalists and they, they put you on the outside so that you'll run to them. And so when you begin to care in a sinful kind of way, about the approval of a person who doesn't care about your soul, who doesn't love Christ, you will end up being manipulated. Second, sinful concern for the approval of others leads to a misjudgment of what is truly praiseworthy. If your standard for feeling good about yourself is what someone else thinks of you, then you're going to be satisfied with what they think of you. But as we read just a moment ago, don't pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes. He's the one who will give our commendation. Not you. He will commend me where I'm commendable. And I'll lose reward where it was wood, hay, and stubble. He will make that judgment. You won't make it. He won't need to call any witnesses when He commends each of us. He knows us. So let me right now, not in a way that turns a deaf ear to you, not in a way that isn't able to be influenced you as an instrument of God in my life, not like that, but in terms of my highest motivations, what matters to me most, let me focus on the one who one day will either commend me or before whose face I'll lose reward. Let me care about him. Sinful concern for the approval of others will lead to the misjudgment of what's what's really praiseworthy. Sinful concern for the approval of others leads to behavior that is not only wrong, but it will actually be something we wouldn't have done otherwise. When you end up trying to please people, you will behave in ways you would not behave if you cared most about what God thinks. You'll end up doing things you would not have done otherwise that are wrong. Let me give you a great biblical example of this. Galatians 2, verse 11. Paul writes of a time when he had to rebuke Peter to his face. He says, But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Isn't that amazing? This is someone who, out of being intimidated, denied Jesus three times. Jesus forgave him, restored him, and here he is, repeating the same kind of error. Preaching a gospel of free grace on the one hand, then acting as if the law is still in force for the church when Judaizers show up because he's intimidated. He wasn't acting like that. Until they showed up. Which means he's behaving in ways he wouldn't have otherwise. Because he wants their approval. And you know what? It wasn't just Peter. Encouraging Barnabas. Went right along with it. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Lift your eyes up. Realize for commendation exists. Care most about what your God knows of you. So two closing cautions. I've mentioned them, but I want to underscore them because it's so important that we don't fall off this razor's edge of the truth. There are legitimate concerns for what other people think about us. There are. You walk into your job tomorrow and you tell your boss, I don't care what you think of me. I care about what the Lord thinks of me. <laughs> I'll see you in the unemployment line. (laughs) God has ordained relationships of authority. It should matter to us in the right kind of way what those people whom we serve under think of us. We serve other people. It ought to matter to us that we're serving them well. In the right kind of way, it's okay to ask, is this meeting the need? In the right kind of way. We ought to care about not being stumbling blocks to each other. I don't care about what anybody else thinks. Well, are you being a stumbling block? You're violating somebody else's conscience? Are you trampling on their conscience? That's not love. You ought to care. In the life of the church, we say it every time we bring new members forward. I'm going to submit myself to the loving discipline, to the oversight, to the shepherding of the elders. That's right, because in the life of the church you're not autonomous when you join a local church you actually willingly submit yourself to soul care which means that when an elder of the church for example comes and says listen i'm concerned about this area of your life you ought to listen to that you ought to care but it's not just shepherds there's also loving care in christian friendships there ought to be a loving care in marriage, which ought to be the best of Christian friendship. When you have a brother or a sister who comes to you loving you, honestly concerned, will you listen to them? So there are legitimate concerns for what other people think of us. Say it another way, there's a sinful kind of independence. There's a sinful kind of independence. Godly humility listens. Godly humility is teachable. Godly humility can be corrected, can be redirected. When is the last time you changed course because someone loved you enough to show you a different way? When is the last time you actually redirected, corrected something in your life because somebody loved you enough to tell you the truth? But even in those two realms, you see, where I'm concerned in the right kind of way about how someone thinks of me. I'm not living in sinful independence. Even there, those two things operate rightly only when I can say what I care about most is pleasing Christ. Because I care about pleasing Christ, I listen to the authorities over me. Because I care about pleasing Christ, I'm open to correction and redirection. Because I care about pleasing Christ, I don't imagine that my assessment of myself is the final assessment. Because I care about pleasing Christ. So may the Lord set us free from serving people so that we can serve Christ. From pleasing people so that we can serve Christ. God's people would say, Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the freedom that we know in your Son from every false standard of commendation. Forgive us, Lord, who we have taken part in self-classification, self-comparison, self-commendation, as we've lived our lives, even as believers during seasons of our life in self-deception, because our universe was too small, our aim was too low, even Lord, as we rightly relate to each other and hear each other and appreciate each other and listen to each other. Lord, may our ambition be singular. Therefore, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him, be pleasing to You, to be pleasing to our Savior. Let this be what drives our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.